You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. This is 166. Ivan Soares, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about tax revenue from cannabis is higher than alcohol in Arizona, the Attorney General Alliance working out safe banking, a new exhibit on the history of Jews and cannabis, 420 cannabis sales are high, are edibles legal in New Jersey, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? I'm asking out of Benzinga um, from Nicholas and Nicholas Jose Rodriguez. Arizona collects more cannabis than liquor taxes. Poll finds one-third of Americans prefer weed over booze. Yesterday, Marijuana Moment reported on a new data, uh, new data showing Arizona collected more tax revenue than in March from cannabis than alcohol and tobacco combined. Now, these taxes are coming from three primary sources. They're 16% adult use excise, adult use sales purchase, and uh, medical sales purchases. Arizona's Joint Legislative Branch uh, Budget Committee revealed the numbers to reveal the widening gap, and it's $11.9 million in March excise alone, or $94.3 million in fiscal to date. Arizona's combined general fund combining both adult use and medical racked up $6.3 million in March and $55.4 fiscal to date. Uh, alcohol, on the other hand, brought in $3.7 million in, uh, and tobacco, $1.7 so far in 2022, the state's collected just under $150 million from cannabis tax revenue, uh, which Arizona Dispensaries Association Executive Director Sam Richard told MJ Moment is a clear indication Arizona, Arizonians 
have fully embraced legal cannabis. This isn't a trend exclusive to Arizona either. An Institute of Taxation uh, and Economic Policy report was referenced in the article revealing most states allow uh, allowing cannabis sales last year raised more revenue from weed excise than alcohol excise and profits combined, uh, with cannabis outperforming alcohol by 20%. YouGov published in a poll in March surveying uh, 10,000 Americans that a third of them said they think that it would be ideal if people used more marijuana and less liquor. All this from a federally illegal Schedule One drug legally unavailable most places to people under 21. Richard continued proposing a hypothetical question. Can you imagine what the fiscal impact would be if government was a partner in our success rather than an opponent? Well, Sam, I really don't know what the impact would look like because where I'm from, the government's track record for partnering with communities usually amounts to a bait and switch. Uh, we can go on for hours about communities uh, that could be helped and infrastructure tended to, but I'd rather not. I'd, I'm just glad that we've got enough eyes on the real-time numbers and data so we can hold regulators accountable for the inevitable misappropriation of funds down the road. This is Rico Lamit, Dobas Dad on the Street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about um, tax revenues creeping, creeping, creeping up, and uh, alcohol and tobacco is dying. If the rates were the same, I wonder what the numbers would be. It's kind of apples to oranges, but um, everybody's just getting squeezed out at this point because we're just tax, 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 tax to death. And... Um, Nobody's going to be left to pay those taxes at the, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's articles like this that uh, worry me because elected officials read these things and they're like, ooh, this is a cash cow. Are you, elected officials read? I thought that's what they had their staff right. for. <laughs> or you can see it like Gavin Newsom and just add more tax, squeeze more water out of that rock, right? So, Rico, are you did you, did you look at this article as they're charging more taxes towards the cannabis industry and those products? Or did you look at it as the general public is turning to cannabis more so than alcohol right now? And that's why there is a surge or increase, or that's why the taxes that have been collected have surpassed liquor. Just your thoughts. I think it can be looked at both ways. Um, Overtaxation of the uh, cannabis industry. And then also um, on the other side, uh, of that, the, the politicians are going to be looking to squeeze more and more money out of it. Um, it's going to be a positive for politicians. Uh, I'm looking to um, be swayed into why um, they should be supporting cannabis um, uh, legislation, um, but it's going to be a negative for the communities and and for the small business owners looking to join the uh, looking to join that community. Um, tobacco and alcohol are on a decline, regardless, um, but. The fact that so much tax revenue is coming up um, and only a third of the people are saying this at this point means it's only going to get worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. I, I th- Come on, Rico. Give them your line, Rico. Give them your I line. I think it's a reminder for our, our folks in the audience that in every state where there is any type of tax revenue that's generated and you see articles like this, that we do need to be asking, where's this revenue going? Um, if these cannabis companies are paying it, I think, and, you know, if they ask, it comes across as disingenuous, but as people that are paying the taxes, it's coming out of your pocket, you're paying for product, where's it going? So that's just a thought to think about as well. Absolutely. And speaking of audience, we've got Gerardo up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in on Rico's headline? I would definitely love to weigh in on it. I think Rico's correct that it's a great way to help 
help people get accountable for later on not providing those funds to where it was. I know in the state of Nevada, our funds go to the school, but then when you ask the school district where those funds go to, they shut up. They don't really have an answer. Other than that, it goes to fixing our streets and our freeway. But I believe if, if our tax revenues keep going up, as they will, I think we should look at Long Beach, how they just passed, um, where they give a certain amount to you know minorities who want to be involved in the cannabis industry instead of giving it back to the lounges and tax breaks for the big people. And that's all. Absolutely. Any last thoughts on Rico's headline? Follow the money. There we you go, Rico. Rico. That's what I was waiting for. You the man, Absolutely. Rico. You the man, Jason. Much love, Gerardo. <laughs> All right. Well, let's keep on moving. Up next is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco, raided by the DEA multiple times, and surviving the drama of the past few decades. He is legitimately the longest continuous cannabis retailer in the United States. What have you got today, Jason? Oh, thank you so much, Susan. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Today, my story comes out of Pennsylvania, where the CCRC faces a lawsuit after allegedly rescinding a job offer over, that's right, you guys, you guessed it, medical cannabis use. A continuing care retirement community is facing a civil rights discrimination lawsuit from a woman who claims that the community withdrew a job offer over her legal use of medical cannabis. In a lawsuit filed on April 20th, of course, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania District Court, Michelle Uzikaniski Hutchinson accused Allentown, Pennsylvania-based Phoebe Devitt Holmes doing business as Phoebe Ministries of violating the Americans with Disabilities Act and state discrimination laws. Uzelinski Hutchinson alleges that she received an employment offer to be a resident care assistant at Phoebe Richland in Richland, uh, Pennsylvania in January, but that a month later she was told in an email that the offer was rescinded based on information collected during a pre-employment screening. Phoebe Ministries President and CEO Scott R. Stevenson told McKnight Senior Living that he is aware of the filing, but that as a matter of policy cannot discuss the ongoing legal matter. At Phoebe Richland, we strive to maintain an accommodating and welcoming work environment that exceeds regulatory guidelines, including those related to the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we take great care to ensure our hiring practices are fair and thorough, he said. The complaint states that Luzinski Hutchinson was legally using medical cannabis for post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety disorder. She said that she showed her medical cannabis card during her medical examination and drug screening, which were part of the hiring process. She also said she sent a copy of the card to the company's medical review officer. Two weeks later, Uzinski Hutchinson said she received an email informing her that a conditional offer of employment had been rescinded based on the information collected during the pre-employment screening process. The complaint maintains that Phoebe Ministries acted in a bigoted, unwillful, malicious manner in withdrawing its employment offer based on her perceived disability as an illegal drug user. As a, as a consequence, a complaint the, the complaint states Uzingitsi Hutchinson was subjected to humiliation, embarrassment, mental anguish, and Uzinski Hutchinson is seeking lost pay benefits 
lost future pay, compensatory damages for emotional pain and suffering, punitive damages, and attorney's fees and costs. Well, now I, I'm, I'm with her, and I think that this is a, a gross misstep that, that companies are definitely going to have to deal with in the future. I think that she is asking for a little bit much in this lawsuit. But we'll see what the judge and jury have to say about this. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That's interesting because she wasn't officially hired yet, right? So, you know, and also the ADA is federal law, so that's not something that is really going to be protected through cannabis use in a lot of jurisdictions, it's not settled law yet. Um, but that's really that's really interesting. I think that the the Pennsylvania law does protect employees for sure, but I think it's debatable as to whether or not it would protect uh, an applicant. I don't know. Well, what what, what if? The, but they off they offered her the job and then rescinded the offer after after that evaluation. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not familiar with this. I mean, mind you, I've never had a job in my life. So um, <laughs> if, if you if like if someone offers you the job and says, "Hey, you're hired," and then you have to go through the screening process, isn't technically haven't you been hired at that point? I don't know. It would depend on the conditional uh, offer, right? So if they sent her an offer that clearly laid out what the conditions for her um, employment would be, and that was part of it then no, she can't accept it yet until she's met all of the, the conditions for the offer. If she accepted it, you know, then you have a contract, and then you have an employment situation. Isn't there normally like a, some kind of temporary time period that to see if things work out for also? Yeah, usually there's a probationary period at the beginning of employment, but um, that wouldn't start until our first day. Yeah, So that's weird. I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I firmly believe that we shouldn't be requiring people to right, to, to pass drug tests as a condition for employment, but it may not be protected in Pennsylvania yet. It just feels so wrong to be calling cannabis a drug to me, but anyway, uh, we've got Kate up from the audience. Kate, did you want to weigh in on Jason's headline? Yeah, so I don't think that they can, I mean, again, we didn't see the contract, but she's being discriminated against because of her disability and the treatment that was recommended by her doctor and pursued in consult with a physician. So her disability status is still protected, whether or not cannabis is legal. The one thing I'll be curious to see with this is um, she probably would have had to have been accommodated to be able to consume her medicine at work. And I think that this is going to be an interesting, bigger conversation as it relates to housing and employment in general. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that you have to accommodate this. And and actually, that has been litigated in federal courts um, that you don't have to under federal law. I don't know what the state law in Pennsylvania is with regard to their accommodation for um, for, for disabled personnel. Um, but there are a number of restrictions in the Pennsylvania Medical Marijuana Act that do relate directly to um, what level of accommodation needs to take place for a medical marijuana registered patient. And, um, you know, it's, it's too much for the purposes of this room, but, um, there's, there, there are protections in place for both the employer and the employee, but that again, that's her status as an employee. She's not an employee yet. Okay. Well, let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Our next correspondent turned down a C-suite analyst position at Twitter, personally offered by the $44 billion purchaser, Elon Musk, because his data was too tainted with drama. But she's an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara. Coming to the stage next, the seeker of truth herself, all in the numbers, Liz Rogan. What you got for us today? 
Thank you so much, Rico. Yeah, I've been fending off Elon Musk. So thank you. I appreciate you sharing that info. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. My story today comes from the Philadelphia Inquirer by Henry Savage. The headline reads, are marijuana edibles legal in New Jersey? State recreational weed law says no. Here's why. So sorry, New Jerseyans, you are not enjoying any uh, legally purchased pot brownies or gummies today. So you can legally purchase cannabis flour, concentrate, drops, and syrups, but unfortunately, the traditional pot brownie is off limits because New Jersey law does not allow for manufacturing and selling of cannabis edibles. Um, New Jersey law breaks cannabis into two distinct categories, ingestible and inhalable cannabis products. Inhalable cannabis products are basically inhaled through smoke or vapor. Ingestible cannabis products are forms of cannabis that can be taken by mouth or absorbed through the body's digestive system, including edibles, but um, sorry, it would include edibles, but it does not. It currently includes tablets, pills, syrups, and tinctures. So in their law, uh, cannabis edible is legally defined as a food item that contains cannabis in some form. And cannabis products can't resemble, quote, commercially manufactured or trademarked, end quote, food products or animals, characters, fruit, or other artistic imagery. Many traditional edibles do fall into these categories. The lawmakers' main concerns are how the products are produced and if they're enticing for children. The New York, I'm sorry, the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission, CRC, which um, oversees the state's cannabis laws and legal operations, doesn't have the capacity to set up a system for commercial kitchens yet, is what they're saying. And they're saying the likeness to real food is a real concern for children who could inadvertently ingest it. So those are their two main reasons that they don't have it. CRC Executive Director Jeff Brown said that despite the limitation on commercial kitchens producing cannabis edibles, quote, our goal is to continue to work to offer more products to patients, end quote. He says there's hope for cannabis edibles as an option for consumers in the future. Devon Ward of the Marijuana Policy Project posed, as the market matures, patients and consumers will want the full host of cannabis offerings, she said. And the market forces will certainly evolve to hopefully reach lawmakers and it'll create that change in the law, so she sees it on the horizon. From a medical perspective, edibles have many benefits, and this is an important method of ingestion for many patients. The onset and offset times and the effects are different than syrups and drops, and I think this grossly overlooks a large contingent of the patient and consumer population and also does a huge disservice to the entire cannabis economic system in this missed opportunity. If there's a few interesting things in this law, a cannabis cultivator or manufacturer um, basically has to produce their products in a safe and sanitary manner to produce um, to protect consumers from adulterated cannabis items. One of which they say is um, cannabis has to be used for usable cannabis. It has to be well cured and free of seeds and stems. Um, I don't know about you guys in other states, but in California, I definitely find seeds in cannabis from the stores sometimes. And then they also have that chemotypes have to be displayed on their um, their flower and other things. So they have a few different ones. One's high THC, low CBD. Then there's moderate THC, moderate CBD, a low THC, high CBD. And then they're saying when it doesn't conform to one of the three chemotypes, like they're saying, it has to be like determined by a mathematical analysis, which is closest to the ratio of THC and CBD. So it's kind of interesting. And and then also on the label, they have to include the growth method, which they're not included, but not limited to indoor, outdoor, soil grown, hydroponic and aquaponic. But I'm coming from California here. They, I'm wondering, do they have an indoor sun grown category like some of the greenhouse growers in California? And how much does uh, credibility and bro science actually come into this and who validates it? So I would really love to hear from New Jerseyans or anyone else's comments on this story. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. How are we defining well-cured? 
Well, I mean, first of all, uh, Liz, uh, in regards to your seed comment, you should probably start smoking indoor and stop smoking outdoor because that'll help you a lot with your whole seed uh, problem. Oh, dude. No, no, no. <laughs> I've been finding those seeds in that indoor. And stems. And stems, I'll say. I think, well, of, of course, you're going to have some stems, especially if you have nice nugs. You're going to find a little bit of stemware in there. That's just that's just part of, of the terrain. Um, but I'm willing to bet that you are smoking outdoor weed labeled as indoor weed. Can can you sell fresh flowers? Why does it have to be well cured? And what is well cured? Well, there, I think there's even a bigger thing in regards with Liz's story is right now, um, Mike Tyson's uh, ear ear earlobeless uh, gummies are selling at a five x multiple of the retail value right now in New Jersey because of this law. Whoa! What about the hair from that other guy, the flaming lips guy? His hair can't do that either, right? His brain. It's his brain. Oh, sorry. If you have a cannabis cookbook, it's time to market it in New Jersey. Uh, Steve, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I was just uh, uh, laughing at that designation thing because like Jason Beck said and somebody else said, if it's not just bro science and people are growing uh, um, light up and putting it in on the shelves as indoor, that happens all the time from what I'm understanding, even though I don't have the ethics to be able to do that because I grow really good cannabis, period. You know, Jason would even smoke my booth. Um, so, um, yeah, thanks for letting me up on the stage. And be careful about what you're smoking. It's not always what they tell you. Jason, it's that sun-grown indoor that they have here. It's like this new created category. Sun-grown, indoor sun-grown. There's no such thing as sun-grown indoor. That's an oxymoron. That's like government intelligence. Amen. I agree. <laughs> Superman, <laughs> Superman harnessed the powers of the sun and he brought it inside. Just it must be mixed light, Liz. Uh, there, it's somebody just it's mixed light I'm no sure. it totally is they just say that and i just think it's ludicrous sorry that's right it should be classified as outdoor booth we'll see if they can add that Corey uh category into the uh the list that they have they can add <laughs> indoor frankenweed as well i'm sure oh the cynics the cynics chem, the cynics. chemweed chem indoor chemweed chem with my weed please are you talking little chemweed what are you guys saying? Kim. Kim. Is that Kimchi? Like Kim. Kim, there ain't no He knows what you're saying. We get tested for that. Get out of here. Then where'd the dog come from? Where'd the Sorry, dog come synthetics. from? Kim he dog. likes the word synthetics better. The, 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 dog, the dog came from, from the yard because who let the dogs out? Oh, 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 oh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was fun for everyone. Thank you so much, Liz, for that fantastic story. Coming up next, we got Roz McCarthy. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial badass leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Booty Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Coming to the stage next, it's Roz McCarthy. Hey, Jason. Good morning, everybody. Hope all is well. Um, happy Tuesday. So this is coming from Fox News, and this is a this is a social justice story. This is a cannabis story. It's, it's, um, it's a lot of different layers to it, so kind of bear with me a little bit. So Biden grants three pardons, um, 75 com um, commutations for individuals serving for nonviolent drug crimes. Biden says, so first, I think the first thing is to understand what's the First Step Act. So that's what I did. I said, well, you know, I wasn't up on that. So the First Step Act is a bipartisan criminal justice bill that passed by the 115th Congress and signed by law by President Trump in, two, uh, in December 
of 2018. Basically, it says that AG must develop a risk and needs assessment system used by um, BOP to assess the recidivism risk and criminal criminogenic needs of all federal prisoners and to place prisoners in recidivism reducing programs and productive activities to address their needs and reduce the risk. So all that being said, basically it means um, for every, um, you get, prisoners get 10 to 15 days of time credit for every 30 days of successful participation in this evidence-based recidivism um, programming. So what does that mean in regards to this article? Well, President Biden is granting his first three pardons while in office and commuting the sentences of 75 individuals serving prison time for nonviolent drug crimes as a part of the Biden's administration broad commitment to reform the justice system and address racial disparities. Well, I have an issue right there and going back to Susan's point, because again, are we talking about drug crimes or are we talking about marijuana cannabis crimes? And and I think it probably leans towards a, a large percentage of, you know, crimes that would be considered, you know, cannabis related crimes. The White House said Tuesday that the pardons and um, and um, embody the president's belief that America is a nation of second chances, saying that individuals have made efforts to rehabilitate themselves, including through educational and vocational training or drug treatment in prison. In prison. Today, I'm partnering three people who have demonstrated their commitment to rehabilitation and are striving every day to give back and contribute to their communities, the pres- president said adding that he's also commuting the sentences of 75 people who are serving long sentences of nonviolent drug offenses, many of whom have been serving on home confinement during the COVID pandemic, and many of whom would have received a lower sentence if they were charged with the same offense today thanks to the Bipartisan First Step Act. So again, it goes into what the First Step Act is, what does it mean, and so we talked about that. And so there's an example. Um, Betty Jo Bogans, 51, is also set to receive a full pardon from the president after she was convicted in 1998 of possession with intent to distribute crack cocaine in the Southern District of Texas after attempting to transport drugs for her boyfriend and his accomplice, neither of whom were detained or arrested. Officials said Bogans was a single mother with no prior record when convicted, and Bogan received a seven-year sentence. Officials says Bogans, since her release, has held consistent employment and even while undergoing treatment for cancer, has focused on raising her son. So again, uh, um, there's another example. Dexter Eugene Jackson, 52, is also expected to receive a full pardon. He was convicted in 2002 for his business to facilitate the distribution of marijuana in northern in the northern district of Georgia, Jackson was not personally involved in the trafficking of marijuana, officials said, but allowed marijuana distributors to use his pool hall to facilitate drug transactions. At the time, Jackson accepted full responsibility for his actions and pled guilty. Since his release from custody, Jackson converted his business into a cell phone repair service, and he now hires local high school students through a program that seeks to provide young adults with work experience. Jackson, according to officials, also works to build and renovate homes in a community that lacks quality, affordable housing. Beyond the pardons, the president said the administration on Tuesday is taking steps to expand employment opportunities and help formerly incarcerated people successfully re-enter society, which a senior administration official said are two key pillars of the president's comprehensive strategy to prevent and combat gun violence and other violent crimes. 
The White House also announced on Tuesday a $145 million partnership between the Justice Department and the Labor Department to invest in job training and reentry programs in federal prisons to provide pathways for a seamless transition to employment and reentry support upon release. The initiative comes as a part of the Justice Department's implementation of the First Step Act. And this law also gives a directive for the DOJ to establish a system to assess the risk of a person to reoffend, as well as to create housing or other incentives for offenders to participate in recidivism, recidivism reduction programs. So I will stop right there because I want not only my colleagues to weigh in, but would love the audience, if you have a comment, to weigh in. The First Step Act, when it was enacted, automatically released 3,100 people from federal incarceration. And we have our president here who made a commitment towards, you know, um, cannabis-related um, social uh, de decriminalization, things of that nature. And I guess my question right now is, is the three, you know, pardons and the 75 individuals that he commuted their, you know, their prison sentence, is that enough? Is that, you know, are we now trying to save face because commitments that were made during the actual election or during the election cycle have not been met and have not, you know, been made whole? So, again, something to think about. I'm Roz McCarthy signing off from the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your thoughts. I, I'm just wondering, how do you look at that list and and say, okay, well, just these 75, it <laughs> It makes me yeah. feel like, yeah. I just, I, I, I want to take one moment. I know this is totally out of my character and whatnot, but I want to thank President Biden for doing this. This is an amazing thing that he's doing, uh, releasing these prisoners from prison. I want to also thank my good friend Weldon Angelos for all of his work that he did over at the White House and helping lead Biden to come to these decisions. So good job, everyone. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, all of these guys once they come home. Woo! Yeah. Um, there's there's the, the plight of women who have been caught up federally as well as statewide um, in regards to prison and in regards to cannabis-related crimes is something that also needs to be shed a light on, um, that, you know, um, sometimes their sentences are more harsh. Sometimes they have been inside of, you know, maybe were dating or married to someone who was incarcerated and they got caught up as well. And so I think there needs to be also um, a spotlight on women who are also suffering, and specifically, um, especially if they were not um, maybe hands-on, that they were caught in a, a whole web of taking down a whole system of, of you know, folks that may be trafficking. Um, I met someone at Benzinga, and her whole entire brand and product is about shedding a light on women who are incarcerated for cannabis-related crimes. That's a good point, Roz. We're going to quickly relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Did you know that the State of Cannabis News Hour's reach goes far beyond the greater continental U.S.? It's true. We've got worldwide live audience members and active downloads as far away as the United Arab Emirates, Japan, even China. 
China. I love them. China. 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 I have to have my China. 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 But also many other places. By becoming a sponsor, you can get your company the global marketing exposure you won't find anywhere else while supporting nonprofit cannabis news. Find out how you can support the State of Cannabis News Hour at www.justsaycare.org. Tell them Rico sent you. I just want to acknowledge that we had a moment here on the State of Cannabis News Hour where we all agreed on a Fox story and Jason Beck said kind words to President Biden. Yay. What a well, that's team. because we all knew that since it was Fox, it was actually real news. <laughs> no. You are fake news. Don't forget to tan your testicles. Shout out to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Coming up Tucker. next. Yeah. This attorney at law focuses on the intersectionality of cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. And if it ain't between 9 and 10 a.m. Pacific, feel free to find out more about what that truly means on her podcast appropriately titled Shall We Talk? Up next, Shalina Panu. What you got for us today? Thank you so much, Rika. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is New York Exhibit Highlights History of the Chosen Ones and Cannabis. New York Post reported that YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, which is near Union Square, will have an upcoming exhibition called the M. Yisrael High regarding cannabis and the Israelites, also known as the Chosen People. As stated on their website, this institute is dedicated to the preservation and study of the history and culture of East European Jewry worldwide. In regards to the history and extensive relationship between Jews and cannabis, they state that there are multiple references in the Bible, the Talmud, and numerous other Jewish texts about cannabis, as even rabbis have considered it in their writings. They further state that Israelite Jews have been using cannabis as religious rituals, as well as for medicinal purposes since the beginning of time. They are not wrong, as the first mention of what can be interpreted as cannabis being included is in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon all the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of the of a tree yielding seed to which you to, to you it shall be for food. Further in Exodus 30, verse one, it mentions God telling Moses to build an altar for burning incest. And in, again, in Exodus 30, verse 22, God says Moses to make calamus into a, anointing oil. Although these references are extremely vague and it does not specifically mention cannabis outright, many historians, philosophers, and religious leaders of all faiths, including including Judaism, Judaism and Christianity, believe that God was referring to cannabis several times in the Bible, specifically when referencing herb and cal- calamus. However, as stated in BuzzFeed News back in 2017, this is still greatly debated among other religious leaders, especially in the Deep South, where the Bible is so powerful it is interpreted in some religions as well. Um, in some regions as well. As the Institute has stated that the Jews are leading the research when it comes to science and medicine in regards to cannabis. They further state how they have been <clears throat> deeply involved with the medical, legal, and counterculture movement, as well as having numerous Jewish business, business people involved in the modern cannabis industry. They understand that cannabis involves all types of people. However, they do have a point when it comes to them being the OGs, as is evidenced purely by facts and history. The purpose of this exhibit is to explore cannabis roots and how the Jewish people immensely contributed to the plant. They will even exhibit a purchase order which dates back to the 1200s. They repurpose a document which was found in a a Cairo synagogue in the 1800s that asked for hashish and textiles in exchange for silver. Further, they will discuss notable Jewish figures such as Raphael uh, McCollum, I don't know if I said that right, and Jack Meshulam. Meshulam. And Jack Herrera. Uh, Raphael was the first person to isolate THC from CBD, while Jack is known 
not only for his incredible strain, but also as the emperor of hemp who fought to legalize cannabis. The exhibit will open on May 5th and will showcase items such as a menorah-shaped bong and the token new cedar uh, plate. Uh, there will also be panel discussions moderated by the exhibit's curator, Eddie Portnoy. Uh, my name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Where is this all going to be, Shalina? It's in the it's in Union Square. Um, they didn't say where exactly in New York. I think this is pretty cool because if you look medically, like at Israel, they've done a lot and they've really been in the forefront of moving forward. And I also know, I think it was Callie Kush or something. They used to have a hilarious package back in the day that was kosher Kush. And it had this like guy with locks in it and uh, it was pretty funny, but there's some pretty good kosher Kush out there. I think that anytime we can emphasize culture when it comes to cannabis, we should embrace it. Uh, we need to keep the culture alive. We need to learn about the culture. We need to care about the culture instead of massive cannabis brands. I'm disappointed that they didn't mention uh, the other biblical people that are involved with, with weed, which were the Kushites. I'm part of the Lost Tribe. I'm, 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 uh, I'm 100% Kushite. I'm just black. I would have never guessed that in a million years. Okay. Um, let's keep smoking some news. All right. Coming up next to the stage, he's an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background and fifth-generation Californian known as a freedom-fighting farmer's friend. This writer, brand consultant, event promoter, and content ninja does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths that the lamestream media may or may not want you to see. Eric Kesslerretta, what do you have for us this morning, my friend? Thank you, Jason. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, great to be here today. Um, my headline is from the Beard Brothers blog, and it's Ladybud's documentary screening helps Cali lawmakers learn impact of cannabis legalization with a subhead reading. Origins Council screens documentary Ladybuds for industry association membership, state officials, public, and regulators in Sacramento. So this is pretty much right from uh, the press release, but when it's coming from an organization that's doing important work like the Origins Council, I'm totally down with it. Uh, jumping right in, Origins Council, a California nonprofit organization that advocates on behalf of legacy cannabis cultivators from historic cannabis-producing regions, announced a screening and discussion of the documentary film Ladybuds, directed by Chris Russo at Sacramento's Historic Crest Theater. Uh, this all happened yesterday. Featuring the stories of six courageous female cannabis crusaders, Ladybuds follows the women as they attempt to transition their business and ambitions from the relatively simple world of the Prop 215 medical cannabis era to the highly regimented commercial cannabis industry fomented by the uh, passage of Prop 64. California Senator John Laird and Assembly members Mia Bonta and Wood co-hosted. Uh, California lawmakers and regulators, Origins Council members, and Ladybud subjects Felicia Carbajal and Chia Rodriguez joined Origins Council Executive Director Janine Coleman and Ladybud's producer Michael Katz for a screening of this award-winning 2021 film, as well as a lively discussion of the issues it raises around California's bumpy road a bumpy road towards a compliant cannabis industry. Ladybuds is both a joyous and difficult film to watch because you're rooting so strongly for the six women to succeed. For various reasons related to the vagaries and restrictions of the compliant cannabis industry here in California, each woman has a very different experience, says Origins Council Executive, Executive Director Janine Coleman. 
In that way, Ladybuds transcends the traditional documentary film by providing a very clear explanation of the challenges on the path to success for all who wish to participate legally in our industry, whether by farming or selling or both. Legislative members and office staffers, members of the governor's administration, commercial cannabis regulators, and Origins Council members had a frank discussion of the issues raised and examined by the film and the possibilities presented by the various legislative proposals to be discussed in the days and weeks following the movie screening. Here in California, no fewer than a dozen pieces of legislation will be heard in the coming weeks, including AB 269 Wood, authored by Wood, SB 1074 from McGuire, whose districts serve the heart of the cannabis industry's famed Emerald Triangle, where the majority of the Origins Council members live and work. Among others, these bills in particular would allow for event direct-to-consumer sales and eliminate the cultivation tax, respectively, and propose real and meaningful reforms to strengthen California's small and independent cannabis producers and companies, as highlighted by the film. This event is a unique opportunity to educate and inform state policymakers on the realities facing small legacy cannabis cultivators and independent non-cultivation cannabis businesses that are finding it more and more challenging to remain in the regulated industry, Coleman says. Prop 64 promised to provide a pathway for existing operators to move into a new system of compliance, and Ladybuds provides a unique insight into re- to the results of those promises. I'm going to say I saw this movie last year at a special screening here in L.A. at the Directors Guild. Rico, I think you were there as well. And it's just amazing storytelling that clearly presents so many of the important issues we discuss here every week. You know, whether that's issues faced by the cultivators, retailers, community activists, it's all here. And it's so great that this is getting in front of the policymakers. So, and I'll also say that I know many of the people involved in this project and everybody in it is just too legit to quit, and the real deal. So please support this film and the people it represents. And that's what I got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Yes, Eric, this film is a testament of the resilience of the cannabis industry, the legacy industry. They've been working on this film forever, and it's so great that it's getting out there. Yeah. I just wanted to say, yeah, yeah, I got got to see that advanced screening with you, uh, Eric. And um, it's just an incredible film, incredible story making. And I love the fact that it's people that we know and we love in the industry that are um, getting to tell this story and it's getting the shine that it deserves. And it should continue going all the way to the top. I can't wait to see the successor project, uh, projects from it. I too. just wanted to add a couple things. So you all can go to ladybudsmovie.com. They have a donation button. It tells you where they're streaming uh, the actual movie. It's on a variety of different platforms. And they also have a section where you can actually help uh, some of these ladies with their own organizations. So second what everybody said, but also just wanted to add that uh, extra info. Thank you for that, Adelia. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Our next correspondent is well known as the CMO of industry-focused digital event platform Event High. But she's recently expanded her reach as co-host of the groundbreaking women-focused Blunt Brunch, which has taken the industry by storm, offering female industry power players piff with their parfaits. Y'all know who it is. Adelia Carrillo, what you got for us? Good morning, everyone. All right. Today's title, U.S. Cannabis Firm to Light Up Thai Weed Scene. This was by Richard Elric. Uh, A Las Vegas-based cannabis company called Audacious has become the first foreign franchise to jointly open a medical marijuana clinic in Thailand. They are treating Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, eating disorders, and insomnia in Bangkok's flashy tourist zone. Um, I hope that Thailand becomes a Silicon Valley of cannabis for Asia, the clinic's Thai partner, Jul. 
Julpas Kupson said in an interview, I welcome Israeli companies. I welcome European companies. The key is to grow the industry. The Herbitus Medical Center actually opened on March 7th, um, and it's along Bangkok's main Sum- Sucumbent Road, which is lined with restaurants, hotels, massage parlors, bars, and extravagant shopping malls. Now, a little bit about the deal. Uh, Australia's Capital Inc., which is doing business as Audacious, is not required to provide capital for construction, working capital, or other purposes. However, they will provide advisory services, operational intelligence, including cultivation, manufacturing, and product development, and expansion of brand visibility in Thailand and beyond. Now, with this partnership, they believe it's going to help bring Thai products um, also to the U.S. and Canada. And currently, the product they have uh, access to is THC oil and CBD oil from the Government Pharmaceutical Organization of Thailand. The joint venture is also seeking other Thai partners to develop non-intoxicating CBD-infused products, including beauty creams, herbal medicines, spa treatments, and beverages. Now, a little bit of information around what the cost points are. The clinic's doctors examine patients and usually give them a very tiny eyedropper bottle containing liquid CBD dominant uh, with 0.2% THC. Now, they charge 1,000 baht, which is $30 in U.S. dollars. So on average, a customer is spending about $125 before they walk out. In July, they are saying it's going to become a non-narcotic and they can start shipping um, things in. They stated it's happening in July, but it says probably September. Now, for those that are unfamiliar, in 2018, Thailand became Southeast Asia's first country to legalize medical cannabis, while recreational use remains illegal. And now a couple other items. Um, At least 10 legal clinics overseen by the health ministry and other officials have treated hundreds of thousands of Thais for common and serious illnesses with CBD-dominant cannabis oil. Currently, they're running into the following challenges. There's not enough locally grown and processed medical-grade cannabis to meet Thailand's needs. Um, The thriving underground underground market is thriving, where at least 600,000 people buy cannabis oil from these underground producers. Um, And as a result, they are trying to uh, combine Audacious and other U.S. and foreign companies and investors to come in for these potential opportunities. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit, a couple more items. You know, Julpis imagines tourists enjoying medical cannabis centers, um, such as wellness spas, and they believe that it's not going to be the patients visiting the clinics that's going to be their biggest moneymaker. It's going to be medical cannabis tourism. So Thailand now enjoys a first mover advantage in Asia uh, because Bangkok's cannabis laws are the continent's most liberal. Um, and one little thing he said was our to- tourism slogan is we are the land of smiles. Well, shoot, give them cannabis. They'll really smile. And I would love to hear everybody's thoughts about Thailand and this upcoming cannabis scene. This is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That I'm is sure, amazing. I'm pretty sure everyone knows why they say Thailand is the land of smiles. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's interesting that they, the company that's the first one doing this, the U.S. company, their name is Audacious. And the definition of Audacious is either showing a willingness to take surprisingly bold risks or showing an impudent lack of respect. <laughs> So that was an interesting name. We've got Stephanie up from the audience. Stephanie, did you want to weigh in? I was just saying, Thailand's going to go on down because I just laid a cover crop on 40 acres out there. So, yep, it's going to be happening pretty quick out there. 
looking forward to some stuff, but it is still kind of in preliminary figure it out mode. Right now, if you actually are a medical marijuana grower, you one, don't get a license until you actually have a partnership with somebody to process it. You can't get a processing license unless you have a relationship with somebody to dispense it, like the medical, the Thai health government up there. It's kind of a model of like what Texas medical marijuana looks like right now, married to Canada. How, how will that affect the exporting? We we got contacted by someone that wanted to find out if we could um, do a deal and export out of either Canada or Jamaica into Thailand. So, so they're kind of probably going to look like the same regulations. You know, you're going to have to have, you know, your CGMP kind of equivalent over there in Thailand. We're working right now with some universities, things like that. So it's going to look like trying to import anything else. Um, out of Canada, like right now, Manny up in Canada is in, uh, exporting stuff to Israel for research. So very similar to that. I think the import laws right now on it stands on with the U.S., We um, you have to import only to somebody with a research license. And I think there's only, what, four or five right now in the country? Well, let's say that the, uh, the cannabis industry's sad beginnings in America look to be off to a happy ending in Thailand. <laughs> hey. <laughs> So spicy. I hope that this leads to a, a resurgence in, in Thai sticks. Uh, I oftentimes have somebody reminiscing on my uh, social media or when I'm talking to patients about the Thai sticks that apparently were like a, a, a bamboo skewer that they dipped in opium and then they, um, and then they just put buds on down the stick and then wrap it with leaves, either tobacco leaves or cannabis leaves, and then cure yep. it like a cigar and it'll burn for like six hours. But I think mm. you can use sugar instead of, instead of the opium dip in order to get them to stick. But you yeah. know, the, it, it's a complex production process, and it'd be wonderful if you could get actual Thai sticks from Thailand sometime soon, wouldn't it? Mary, yeah, actually, you can. Actual- you can. And actually, one of the ways to do it is actually to bury it in ground in bamboo or wrap it in leaves, and then you actually bury it to ferment. So that's also where you get that psychedelic yeah, high Yeah, they from have it. to get fermented. and uh, Yeah, I think it probably does bring out the hashish. If it's going to be an actual Thai stick, it has to have opium in it. Well, you might be able to do it, I think, Jason, with THCO, which is that hemp-derived concentrate that has quite a bit of psychedelic. You're not going to be able to I mean, add It's not going to be a true opium. You're not going to be able to add boof to make make real tie stick. I'm not buying that. Well, I'm not do sure. Do we know anything about the genetics? Do we know anything about the genetics that they have in Thailand? Um, you know, is this, we always talk about boof and just the quality of cannabis. So is this going to be pretty good cannabis? They've all been smuggled. They have here. some Thailand. Yeah, they have land race, but they are letting import come in for genetics right now. That's actually the play on mine. I'm bringing in my genetics with the CBC and everything. So that's a big research project we're working on, on the miners over there. But they haven't, yeah, they're still looking for actual more medicinal cultivars. Their program over there, though big money will be recreational for the tourism industry, their actual program is very, very medical medical focused. The DEA just the DEA just said it's okay to uh, sell seeds because there's no THC in them. All their all their weed comes from booth seeds. You guys are telling me out there. No, no, they, they actually, get... Thailand has a lot of super old school sativa land. They races, do. So just like that part of the world. So they have really some fantastic genetics. Who knows what they're doing with it or if anything, but they do have, Thailand has excellent genetics, very old school sativas. 
they are and they got a lot of miners showing up in their in their cultivars if you guys get a chance check up zamaya seeds they're actually land race Cam- cambodia laos all that they're they're underground renegades but they do actually bring seeds they will ship seeds to the u.s from thailand race do they sell uh, Cambodian breast milk too? <laughs> 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 I'll put it in a special order. We'll find out. Gift with purchase. Oh my goodness! Let's keep smoking the news. All right, coming up next, this badass cannabis is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section founder of San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and the organic source of the silkiest, smoothest vocal cords in the Western Hemisphere. What do you have this morning for us, Laura? Hi, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for that, Jason. I have, uh, bringing it back to the United States, an article out of High Times by Nicole Potter. It's entitled, New Cannabis and Hemp Certification is Acknowledged by Attorneys General Alliance. Um, The article is actually not that well written, but the content is super important. And since we here at the State of Cannabis News Hour like to discuss the safe banking so much, I wanted to cover this today. Apparently, attorneys general from across the U.S. have agreed to officially recognize the launch of the Public Health and Safety Cannabis Financial Service Certification, which was announced at the Attorneys General Alliance's Cannabis Project Conference in Denver, April 20th and 21st. Uh, the link to the conference is expired, and there's no link to that certification So it's not readily apparent what this means, but a review of the AGA website on cannabis initiatives also doesn't provide much information, so maybe you can't blame the author. The AGA was just formed in 2019 to deal with emerging issues such as public lands, water rights, tribal issues, all issues that do exist in cannabis. So so there is that. It's making sense. But what the AGA executive director, Karen White, is quoted as saying is, this is an important first step to give uh, guidance to the state's attorneys general and lawmakers while raising the bar for the industry. New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas presented the official certifications to recipients at the conference, and he was quoted as saying, it's crucial to know where cannabis and hemp operators are banking to maintain a level of compliance. It's an interesting article um, according to another article on PR Newswire, the overall certification is now accepted by state and federal regulators as a standard of compliance and implementation of general risk and mitigation strategies. The article sort of goes on to opine um, that the need for safe banking is necessary, her wording, not mine, um, especially in light of recent events in Washington state where multiple cannabis dispensaries were robbed and employees were killed. Uh, she also goes on to uh, discuss uh, Ed Perlmutter's April 19th letter where he employed leader Schumer and Senators Booker and the Committee on Finance Chairman Ron Wyden to pass safe banking in any way, shape, or form they possibly can. Anyway, it's an interesting concept. It looks to be awarded to financial institutions that play nice with regard to some set of rules We'll be fleshing this out more, but it may be one step toward um, really encouraging financial institutions to participate in the banking industry, even without safe banking. We'll see as it as it comes uh, to play. My name is Laura DeCaro. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Pass safe banking. 
<laughs> I don't know if you were going to say that. Is that a recording? <laughs> <laughs> do we have that recorded yet? Yeah, yeah. we do. <laughs> okay, good. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's just, it's, one of the goals is to stated goals is to provide law enforcement, um, you know, with rules of thumb necessary to identify legal cannabis and hemp that's moving through the industry. So I'm not sure how law enforcement and these financial institutions are all coming together. It's really kind of a, a hodgepodge of information at this point, but something definitely to keep an eye on. But better than working with Congress. So this is really cool. Um, I am going to go right into my story so that we have time because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, my story comes from Green Entrepreneur. It's The title is, Across the Country, Cannabis Dispensaries Saw Biggest 420 Sales Ever by Leslie Bala. Okay, so 420, people say this, but 420 is not weed Christmas. It's so much better than that. It's a celebration, pure and simple. No drama of trying to find the the perfect gift for someone. No drama of having a forced conversation with your conspiracy-loving relatives. Just a love of cannabis and sales show that there's a lot of love. All the cannabis software companies agree that sales were high. Kova reports that 647 new stores celebrated their first 420 in 2022, which is slightly higher than 2021. The average spend per transaction Transaction was $68. Every state, legacy or not, saw an increase in sales, including Colorado 103%, Massachusetts 234%, Missouri 233%, and Oklahoma 170%. I wonder what Californians was. They didn't say. Trends across the board include flour being less popular this year, with more customers jumping to edibles and beverages. The latter increased 176%, according to Headset. Pre-rolls did well, <clears throat> as did concentrates, which increased by 155% this year, while in store purchases still make up the bulk of cannabis sales, online ordering increased across the board. Will the trend continue? In a word, yes. By all accounts, with more states now allowing adult-use cannabis sales, including big population states like New Jersey and New York, and possible federal legalization on the horizon, sales will continue to increase, according to the article. Some have projected that sales could surpass $30 billion by the end of 2022 in the U.S. alone. New Jersey, this was interesting. New Jersey sales began on 421. I didn't know that. A day after the big green holiday, which was on purpose, the state worried that the mad rush for legalized cannabis plus 420 would be too much for the state's industry all at once. What? Too much money? Mostly a supply and demand issue. Wowza. Okay. Well, so we have reached the end of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show. Any where you get your podcasts. And if you like our content, please subscribe and leave a, re- a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through the no- news every day and bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing this show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour. 
where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. So that one.